All right, well, the children are leaving with their leaders to have their time, and we today are going to turn to Jonah. Today, we begin a little journey. We're going to journey along with Jonah. For the next several weeks, we're going to accompany Jonah on his little trip that he is taking. We're going to get familiar with the text of Jonah. It may be already a text in which we're fairly familiar with, but we're going to familiarize ourselves with it even more and critique some of the things happening in Jonah's life. So for today and for the next several weeks, at least through probably Mother's Day weekend, we're going to pretend that we are traveling with Jonah. Wherever Jonah goes is where we will go. We're going to be on foot with him if he's walking, and we'll be in the boat with him as he's fleeing from the Lord. Now, it should be an interesting journey, because whether we realize this or not, we have traveled some of the same territory, some of the same steps in which Jonah himself was traveling. You're thinking, no, I didn't live back then. I mean, John was pretty close to living back then. I wasn't. So I couldn't possibly have traveled the same steps as Jonah, but we have. We don't recognize that we've also done the same kind of actions, behavior, steps, if you will, as Jonah. Because at times in our lives, we are exactly like Jonah and followed in some of those steps. We have ran from God, like Jonah. We have disobeyed God, like Jonah. We have questioned God at times. We've been angry with God. So we are perhaps more like Jonah and following his footsteps than we ever imagined or maybe even realized. So we are maybe even without even thinking about it until bringing that to your attention today. Yes, we are a lot like Jonah. So because of that, then again, the next several weeks, we're going to put on our walking shoes. We're going to straighten and fasten up our laces and we're going to walk with Jonah and go wherever he goes. So we're going to do it right. We're going to start from the beginning and go to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read through the entire first chapter of Jonah, which is 17 verses, but won't make it through the entire message pertaining to the 17. In fact, really, the message only pertains to the first three. But nonetheless, we read the entire first chapter. So stay with me this morning. If you're able to, as we look at our journey with Jonah into Jonah chapter 1, again, the 17 verses, we'll read them all. But really, the message pertains to the first few verses. But it says in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, who were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lay down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that a great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not uh, on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him to the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Well, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In verse 17, the Lord then appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word, and as we start our adventure with Jonah, Lord, our journey, we pray, Lord, you'll accompany us, you'll guide us, you'll direct us. We pray, Lord, the Spirit will lead us. Let us recognize how the journey that we're on with Jonah is indeed a journey that we may be on at this moment. So Lord, for that, we just pray for application and instruction and guidance as we go through Jonah together. We ask, Lord, you'll start that with us today. Lead us, Lord, into how we can certainly apply this message and understand the book of Jonah better. So thank you in advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I think because of the familiarity we have with Jonah, I mean, you learn of the story of Jonah as the children were vacating, going back to their time today with their teachers and instructors today. They also know the story of Jonah. So it's a story we hear about Jonah being swallowed by that great fish. Many will say a whale, even though the scripture does not tell us it was. Early in life, in childhood, we learn that story. We are very familiar with it. And likewise, we learn about his rebellion where he ran from the Lord. So consequently, because we are so familiar with the story of Jonah, I mean, the book of Jonah is only four chapters in length. We immediately know it, so we rush down to the part about the fish being in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights. But there's so much more before we get there. So today, we're going to go back to the beginning and begin to dissect it and understand why we're walking with Jonah, what these first few verses can apply to us. But before we do all that, let's learn a little bit more of the contextual setting and the time with Jonah was in Nineveh. And the first thing we may need to know on our journey with Jonah is about the city of Nineveh. It's often called a great city. Often throughout the book of Jonah, in fact, even within the first verse we read today, it referred to Nineveh as the great city. 
And it was a great city. You can see a picture behind me of a, a rendering of what it may look like. So it was a great city indeed. In fact, many believe it was second in size only to Babylon. So yes, it was a great significant city of that time and day. The city itself was located on the east side of the Tigris River, about 550 miles northeast of Samaria. Now, without a map, and now you're going to see a map behind me of where that's going to be, without a map, that don't mean anything at all. And even with the map, you find it really still may not mean a lot. But recognize that this is the area that we're referring to. Notice, if you will, it's 550 miles in which Jonah must go if he's going to obey the command the Lord has given him. 550 miles. Now, Jonah's not about to get in the truck and travel to where he needs to be to preach to Nineveh, to the Ninevites. In fact, what he's going to do, he's not going to fly, he's not going to go to a boat, he's not going to get shrink, he's going to get a boat, but a different way. He's going to walk. Walk. 550 miles. If you walked on average 20 miles or so a day, it's going to take you about a month to get there or more. A month of walking, five to eight hours a day, walking nonstop to your destination from go where Jonah is now currently as he receives the command to go to Nineveh. 550 miles. How many miles? Okay, we're listening. Just how far is 550 miles? I wanted to know. So I Googled. If I was at the nearest airport, which to me is Evansville, okay, Evansville is a large metropolitan airport, right? So if we go, it's not. But if we go to Evansville and we're about to depart, we normally would leave the airport, obviously, in a plane. But we're not going to be in a plane. We're traveling with Jonah, so we're going to walk. So I'm thinking, how far for a month would I have to walk if I'm headed south from the Evansville airport walking with Jonah? Where am I going? Where's it going to take me 550 miles later? So if that's where we are, if that's what we're doing, we're headed south, and we're just a little bit maybe to the east, 553 miles from the Evansville Airport is going to land you in Tallahassee, Florida. That's how far you're going. Or suppose you didn't want to go to Florida and you wanted to go maybe just a little bit further to the west. Say you want to go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That's like 516 miles. A little short of 550, but you'll still get there in roughly a month or so. But maybe you don't like to go south. Maybe you think, I'd rather go east. So if you go east from the Evansville Airport and begin to travel in a particular direction, in about 500-something miles, you'll get to Raleigh, North Carolina. Or due east, perhaps, is Richmond, Virginia. But that's where Jonah's going. That's where he's traveling, and we're traveling with him. And are thinking, I don't like to go south or east. I want to go west. Go west, young man. Well, if you go west, you'll land in Lincoln, Nebraska. 500 and some miles later. And if you prefer to go north, you can land in St. Paul, Minnesota. That's how far we're traveling by foot with Jonah. And it's going to take us a month to get there. 
But just so we're fully aware then of the place that we're traveling with Jonah, we need to also understand about the history of where we're going to go. Because, yeah, that's a little bit about the city, but let's learn a bit about the history of the place in which we're told to go. So historically, we need to find that Nineveh was built by Nimrod. In Genesis chapter 10, we find that Cush was the father of Nimrod. In verse 11 of Genesis 10, it said that Nimrod, then it says he, it's Nimrod, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So that's how it came into existence. Nimrod, the mighty warrior, built the city of Nineveh. But we also need to know that in Jonah's day, it became the capital of the Assyrian Empire under Sennacherib, who became the king and destroyed the northern kingdom, as it mentions in 2 Kings 18.13. So we're learning a bit about the city and historical significance of Nineveh, because we're going to be walking for a month with Jonah if we obey the Lord. Of course, Jonah doesn't obey the Lord. But if he had, his purpose of going would have been preaching repentance to the Ninevites. Because it tells us in the very first verse of chapter 1 that evil had come upon them. Their wickedness, their evil is known to people. So it come upon the presence of the Lord. He sends Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. In chapter 3, which we'll eventually get to in verse 8, it mentions that the Assyrian king actually listens and he hears and he begins to repent. Now, the king then is not Sennacherib. He has died and passed on by that. But that is the information we have to know about where we're going if we're going to walk with Jonah. Now, one more thing of interest is about the Ninevites themselves, the Assyrians, if you will. Nahum begins to tell us some of the things that they are known for. In Nahum chapter 3, he says, Woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder. In verse 3, it says, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. Verse 4, the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with their whorings and peoples with their charms. And overall, the city in which Jonah is told to go to, Nineveh, with the Ninevites' inhabitants, they are known in the ancient Near East for these kind of things. The brutal atrocities that they like to inflict upon its war captives. They're also known for their pagan idolatry, their worship of false gods. They like to worship the god Nabu, Ashur, and Adad. And they also like to worship the goddess Ishtar, a goddess of love and of war. That is Nineveh and the Ninevites that God has commanded Jonah to go and to preach repentance. We're going to accompany him on his, on his journey. It's going to be a long journey, 550 miles, a month to get there. It's going to be difficult once we get there to be able to preach to people that we may despise, a group of ruthless, evil people. But nonetheless, the Lord has told us, as we go with Jonah, this is our way what? We are to do. So having said all that, let's now go back to the beginning of the text, verses 1 through 3. Notice in verse 1, as we go back to the beginning, the very first thing that should leap off the page at you is it said, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But notice the word Lord. 
And how in nearly every translation I looked at, it is all in capital letters. L-O-R-D, Lord, all in capital letters. And it should be noted that when you see the Lord, all the capital letters, it signifies the fact that he is speaking. It is his personal name, Yahweh, that is being used in the Hebrew text. And that's important to understand because now it tells us that no one other than truly God himself is speaking directly to Jonah. And that's not a small thing. Matthew Henry observes that God's word, when he speaks to us, it's a real thing. Men's words are but wind, but God's words are substance. And to me, that's an acute observation that Matthew Henry makes here. So before we run ahead to any other verses, I mean, we're so familiar, we're going to leap down to the great fish, but before we leap to other verses, we need to first recognize that God himself is speaking directly to Jonah. The Lord, Yahweh God personally himself is speaking to Jonah. Which, as we begin to even think about that, then we should also recognize that that was not initially all uncommon in the Old Testament. For understanding, we should maybe consider and recognize and maybe insert here that God was often speak to the Old Testament prophets. God himself would speak directly to them. That the word of the Lord would come to them. In Jeremiah, for example, it says, Now the word of the Lord, to get all capital letters in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, came to him, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. But notice the word of the Lord, all capital letters, spoke directly to Jeremiah. It also happened to the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 16, we find some similar wording. 16, chapter uh, verse 1, again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abomination. Or in chapter 21, again, similar wording, where it said, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. So notice, if you will, then, that it's not uncommon for the word of the Lord with capital letters, God speaking directly to the prophets. Now, it wasn't just the prophets in which God would speak to. You also find the word of the Lord, as we find it here in Jonah, or in Jeremiah, or in Ezekiel, similarly worded throughout the Pentateuch, particularly Genesis 15:4, when God spoke to Abraham about the covenant which he was making with him. And there's also times you can find similar wording in the historical, historical books like Samuel and Kings. So again, it wasn't altogether uncommon for the word of the Lord to come to people in the Old Testament. It would often come to men via the Spirit, and maybe through visions. But I'm thinking about that and applying to this week, I began to realize that some people think that God does not talk to us anymore in any particular way at all. But that could be further from the truth. I mean, God still speaks to us today. Maybe not so much in the way he spoke in the Old Testament to the prophets, maybe not necessarily through visions, but he still speaks to all of us nonetheless in our time today. So let us time out and consider how God speaks to us today. And Charles Stanley notes four distinct ways in which God speaks to every one of us. 
The first, according to Stanley, is his word, the Bible, the book we're reading. It's not just a book. It is the inerrant, authoritative word of God. And like Sheila tells the children or the other people leading the children during their message time each week, it is the only source of truth. Everything in it is true. But when we read it, we can hear directly from the Lord as we begin to read his word. So, yeah, one way the Lord speaks to us is through his word. A second way is through prayer. I mean, prayer undoubtedly, as we know, is our way of communicating with God by talking to him. But it's also a time in which we should sit and listen. Don't let it be a one-way conversation. So many times in prayer, we like to dictate the things going on. We like to tell exactly God what's on our mind and give those prayer requests to him. But it's also a time in which we sit and listen, wait for his guidance. And he may direct us a certain way. In that way he directs us, he's speaking to us. So yeah, it can be his word, it can be prayer. It can also be circumstances. I mean, God uses difficulties and suffering to grab our attention. So instead of maybe focusing on the situation at hand is happening, or that just happened, maybe we should sit and consider and listen for a while and say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me right now? the situation that's happening. And then fourthly, according to Stanley, another way that God speaks to us is through other people. Now, that could be an affirmation, a confirmation, or maybe just words of encouragement. It could be a reproof or warning. And it could be through other people that we may know directly, a friend, a colleague, a co-worker. It may be a family member. It may be even an enemy or a stranger that God can use to send us a particular word. So in these ways, we can still have God to speak to all of us. Not many years ago, whenever my dad was dying from cancer, I've told you perhaps before that I wasn't sure. I was living in Texas at the time, no, Mississippi. I was living in Mississippi, and dad was still here in Indiana. And as we were having Thanksgiving that particular year, 2003, I could tell dad's health had changed considerably. And we knew that perhaps time was truly drawing short. So in the week after Thanksgiving, I'm back in Texas. I mean, I still got a job to do. I mean, not in Texas, but Mississippi. Still got a job to do. So I go back to Mississippi, eight-hour trip from here to there. And my brother calls me one evening and said, Kurt, it's time. I mean, you've met Ken. Ken called and said, Kurt, you got to come home and it's, it's going to be time. He says, at least if you want to see Dad again before he dies, you got to come back. Well, what may be seem like an easy decision to want to see my dad one more time before he left, before he died, for me really wasn't an easy decision at all. Because now I'm beginning to think, do I want to remember dad as I truly want to remember him, a strong person that I always knew he was? Or do I want to come back and see him maybe not being like that person I want to remember, in that frail, weak condition, dying? Asked me for his last breath. Do I want to see that or just simply remember him as I want to remember him? Because I really didn't know what to do. I was struggling. I began to pray and ask God to speak to me. I began to pray. I mean, I'm wanting God to tell me what to do. 
I mean, I'm not going to hear that audible voice, but I'm wanting God to direct me in what I need to do. So I began to pray about it, and then after a while, after prayer, I began to just read the Word. Just various parts of the Bible began to just thumb through and began to read just various sections of it and still looking for the answer for God to speak to me and tell me. Well, I began to have some a feeling that God was telling me that the next thing I need to do was maybe get some rest because I was going to make a trip. I was going to truly go back from Mississippi to Indiana and see that. I felt the, that God was leading me in that direction. So he was like telling me, look, go get some sleep, get some rest. I got this. And when you go to work the next morning, you simply tell them what action you're going to take and they're going to allow you to go. So I got to bed and got some rest and got up next morning went on my way to work. And remarkably, when I got to work, I was like, people were receptive to the fact that I was about to leave. They knew my dad had cancer, but they didn't know how he changed during a particular time from Thanksgiving to the week after. But it's like God had prepared their hearts to be receptive to the fact that I was going to tell them what I needed to do. So God spoke to me through prayer, through his word, through people, through circumstances. And that's exactly how God works. That's how he speaks to us in our time today. Yeah, it wasn't uncommon for God to speak to people in the Old Testament, to prophets and to people sometimes like Abraham directly or through vision or whatever means. But today God speaks to us in the ways that we learned as Stanley directs us through his word, through prayer, through circumstances and other people. But that's not how he spoke to Jonah. According to what we find in Jonah, as we're walking with him, dissecting the text, as he speaks directly somehow, some way to Jonah. And what does it tell Jonah? He tells Jonah in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, again, that great city which is so often referred to, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. So there's what God himself tells Jonah. So Jonah, the good guy that he is, right? He just gets up and goes, doesn't he? No. We know the story. We know he doesn't. Verse 3. But Jonah, I mean, he did rise. He rose. But rose to flee, to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare went aboard to go with the Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So notice as now God himself spoke to Jonah in some way, some fashion, that Jonah bails. I mean, he flees, he runs. Whatever word you want to describe his actions, he goes the other direction. He's going away from God which means he's completely right now disobeying the command, the word that God has given him. He's disobeying God because God himself spoke to him and told him what he needed to do, which leads into our first application, which is this. Disobedience for Jonah or for anyone never pays a dividend. Disobedience never pays a dividend. I mean, think about this. When I was a child, it's been a few years ago, but when I was a child, I can never remember being rewarded for a time I did not obey my parents. 
It never happened. When I was disobedient to my parents, the opposite happened. I was punished. I got spanked. I got grounded. I mean, there for a while, whenever I was in school, even when I got my driver's license, I still had a curfew. If I broke my curfew, I got grounded from something. Today, you want to ground your children, I'm sorry, from their phones. Because, man, you really punish them. Back in our day, if you wanted to ground someone like myself, we didn't have the phones back then. You know where we got grounded from? If we were driving, the car. They take the keys, something like that. So if I broke curfew, if I did something wrong back in that day, never reward, never dividend, always punishment. And I must explain something to you. Shields out of the rooms, so I'm going to say something like this. I know I get myself in trouble quite a bit. That's not hard to do. But whenever I was driving, Shield and I dated in high school, okay? So whenever I was driving, when I had to come home late to curfew, it was always Sheila's fault. Always. So when you see her, tell her, you got Kurt in trouble as a child? I mean, how dare you? Because she was always the troublemaker. I was never the troublemaker. I was always the good guy, right? But she was the one that landed me in trouble. So it's Sheila's fault. That's right. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny knows what I'm talking about. He's living with Jeannie. Okay? So Jeannie's the troublemaker in that family. Right, Johnny? Another amen. All right. So it's always the woman's fault, right? I mean, it goes back to Adam and Eve. No different story. But we never have a time when we disobey to result in a dividend. It's always some punishment. It's like Jonah doesn't understand this. I mean, remember when Saul disobeyed Samuel, I mean, God directly spoke to Samuel and tells Saul precisely to destroy the Amorites. He, so in, in, in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel had to come and tell Saul that it's better to obey than it is to sacrifice because Samuel tried to justify his disobedience. So in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel had to tell Saul it is better to obey than it is a sacrifice. So we recognize here that Jonah received a specific command. He received the word of the Lord from God, and he did not obey. So listen, Jonah flat out disobeyed God's will. And when we do that, like for Jonah or for us, it always invites trouble into her life. Any disobedience always results in some sort of trouble, so it seems. Worsby captures this and says, Jonah got into trouble because his attitudes were wrong. To begin with, he had a wrong attitude toward the will of God. Obeying the will of God is as important to God's servant as it is to the people whose servants minister to. It's in obeying the will of God that we find our spiritual nourishment our enlightenment, and enablement. To Jesus, here it comes now, the will of God was food that satisfied him. To Jonah, the will of God was medicine that choked him. I like Worsby's words, the way he describes it, particularly that last segment, where it says, the, to Jesus, the will of God was food that satisfied him. But to Jonah, the will of God was medicine that choked him. 
because it leads to a second application principle or point, which is this then. That too many people today, even some Christians, today we think that obeying the Word of God, following Him, chokes us from having any fun in life. It chokes us from having any fun. We're too restricted. We can't do things. So as a result, we end up picking and choosing what commands we want to simply obey as given in His Word. But we don't get to pick and choose. It means like we obey or we don't obey, which is disobedience. So in short, again, we find ourselves, as we're walking with Jonah, a lot like him. Because he may have had the wrong attitude, but so do we at times. Because we want to pick and choose the ones that apply and which ones don't, and sometimes disobey the ones that don't we don't think apply to us. So what that means then is this. For Jonah, his wrong attitude towards God stemmed from a feeling that the Lord was asking him to do impossible things. God's always going to equip us. If he calls us to do something, he's certainly going to equip us to do it. God commanded the prophet Jonah to go to Israel's enemy, to go to Assyria, to go to Nineveh, and the city of Nineveh to repent. But Jonah would rather see anything but that happen. In fact, if Jonah had a preference, he'd rather see the city completely destroyed because he hates them. He despises them. I mean, the Assyrians are evil, cruel people who often mistreated the Israelites. And Jonah, of course, he's an Israelite. So he has this little view of patriotism for his country. And he knows he's looked upon as hated. And he likewise hates them back. And he's selfish in a way that he does not want anything good to come to Nineveh. But he took that patriotism and maybe his selfish desires and he allowed it to take precedence and direct him over this voice that spoke to him from God to go. Simply put, it allows us to have a main point of application for today. It was that Jonah forgot or just simply did not want to pay attention. That obedience to the will of God is the expression of our love for God. Jonah forgot, or maybe just didn't want to recognize, that our obedience to the will of God, when we listen and act upon what God wants us and tells us to do, is the expression of our love for Him. It works the same way for children. When our children, when we tell our children something, and we want them to obey and listen, and they carry it out as we've done, which seems to be rare at times, it's still an expression of love they have for us. And when it doesn't happen, we think, well, there'd be a disobedient. They don't love us. The same applies to God our Father. So then it boils down to how we need this morning to be thinking about our obedience to God. I mean, we're only through the first three verses of our walk with Jonah. But as we begin to think about our obedience to God, think about is God calling you to something today in which he wants you to do something of his will, maybe if not even of yours. But you begin to sense it in a way that God would speak to us as we recognized earlier. He's speaking directly to you and would like for you to truly do this and obey. 
So as you begin to send a sense of God calling you to do something, knowing it came directly from him, you know it through his word, through prayer, circumstances, other people, God has confirmed it for you. Do you listen? Do you do it? Do you obey? Or do you do like Jonah and you're with him now and run the other way? Because too many times we ignore it. Or we put it off. And think it would just go away. Begin to rationalize, maybe even make excuses. I've been a pastor now for many years. I haven't always been a pastor. In fact, I was a plant manager. Most of you know I was in the chicken business for many years and was a plant manager. And 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 you get to live as a plant manager, honestly, not bragging or trying to make anything special. You live a pretty comfortable life. Because when I was a plant manager for Tyson Foods, I made $140,000 a year. And I can do a lot of stuff with $140,000 a year income. Provide for my family. We can do all kinds of wonderful things. So I'm not saying that except for to tell you that when God called me then to not be the plant manager anymore, but to be a pastor, I have to process in my mind, begin to think, well, that's a radical change. I mean, you're talking about a significant life change from a well-provided income to do anything you want to at any time to a time where you're going to have less and will have to sacrifice and do things that you may not have done before and they may be uncomfortable with. When I first started going to church with Saved at the age of 38, I told the guy in the Sunday school room, my, my teacher, he said, Kurt, will you want to pray for us today? No, oh, no, man, don't ever ask me to pray. I can't pray. I can't read the Bible. I can't do any of that stuff. Don't do that. So it's going to take me greatly out of my comfort zone. And I want to lose that great income. I'm just being honest with you. And when that's happening and you begin to still feel that God's speaking to you, and that, that, that doesn't go away because we try to push it off, right? We try to make sure that, I mean, that ain't really happening. God's not really asked me to do that. He wouldn't really want me to make that sacrifice. So we begin to make excuses of why we shouldn't and why he's not asking us that. Well, excuses is disobedience. We don't often think of it that way, but that's really what it is. I mean, excuse is just a way of saying, God, we're not going to pay attention to that. We're going to do something different. But often if God is trying to get your attention, he'll speak to you, like we mentioned earlier, and he'll get your attention. So things begin to evolve at work because I couldn't lose the safety net of the income, making excuses. And so what did God do? Well, he's going to get Jonah's attention. And when he called you truly something, he will get your attention. He took away the safety net. He took away the job. So now it's gone. So then you truly recognize the excuses are no more. So when the excuses are no more, then you finally become obedient. That's what I did. So God, we can't do this. There's no possible way. But God calls you to it. He equips you and he takes care of you. And eventually he lands you in a wonderful place like we're at right now. So we must be obedient. Jonah is a story we're going to enjoy for the next several weeks. Jonah was not obedient 
at least in the beginning. I mean, he heard God, and he ran the opposite direction. I mean, hearing God and obeying God does not come with options. I mean, for Jonah, he thought that maybe he could take it or leave it. But when God's word commanded him to go, he should have simply got up and went. Just like it would be for any of us. When God called me to preach, I should have said, yes, God, here I am. Use me. Let's go. Which means most simply listen and obey. Disobedience is not an option. Jesus mentions in Luke chapter 6, verse 6, 46, he says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? That's a great verse to memorize. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things which I say. Obedience is not an option. No excuse is good enough. And we're barely into our journey. But for today, we kind of come to a moment of closure. We're going to set the rest aside and pick up more of the story next week. But notice again the overall theme and point for today as we begin our journey with Jonah. That yes, obedience is not an option. That we need to make a choice to obey or to disobey. Sometimes we don't make a choice, which is still disobedience. So as we begin to travel along with Jonah, let us put ourselves in his shoes. As we're going to strap on our shoes and walk with him, but we really need to put ourselves in his shoes. As I mentioned earlier, so many times we're in his shoes and we don't even recognize that we've lived that moment. But we have argued with God. We have disobeyed God. We have questioned God. So today then, let us start new and listen and obey. Let us listen and obey because obeying God demonstrates our love for him. The best expression we could possibly have to give God our love for him is to simply say, yes, Lord, and obey. So today, yes, Lord, and obey. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today and our beginning of the walk with Jonah. Lord, we pray this message will be instrumental for us as we go through the next several weeks. Today, a bit of an introductory, Lord, to Jonah. We pray, Lord, you'll speak to us today and to all the weeks we have ahead coming into Jonah. It's a familiar story with us, Lord. We recognize that. But, Lord, I pray that you'll let us put, look, look past what we have become familiar with since a childhood age and begin to apply this text into our lives. We pray today, Lord, for our church, for each of us as individuals, to simply say, yes, Lord, lead and guide, and let us be completely obedient surrender and submit to his will and to his way. So thank you for how the beginning of this walk with Jonah shows us that our obedience is our expression of love for you. We thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. In your name we pray. Amen.